Welcome to The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles, and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects, both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. So hello again, rabbit holies. Hello, Kat. Now, how is everyone today? This is a little bit of an odd one because for the first time, we're not actually in the same place. Well, we've had Richard away on his um, travels, but uh, now all three of us are at different parts, I think. Yeah, Charles is excitingly located compared to you and me, I think, Kat. So we'll let him boast about that, shall we? (laughs) I'm in a place which not many Englishmen go to on their summer holidays. I'm in Canada. Nice. Yes, well, I think mine's not too bad either, though. I'm I'm near the sea as well. I'm, I'm up in Oslo, so we're both by water. Well, I too, thank you very much, am near the sea. I'm speaking to you from my home in East Sussex. Perfect. It's reassuring, you know, as we're in far-flung corners of the world, to think of East Sussex, is a, it's very reassuringly British. And do you have bears that come That's and disturb important. your rubbish by night? Yes, we have black bears, but they're not very dangerous. I mean, I think they would be if you got between them and their cubs, but they're just foraging around. And around this time of year, they swim from island to island, heading towards hibernation. So, yeah, but there's, you know, there's raccoons, there's apparently wolves. I've never seen them. Lots of deer and all sorts. But, yeah, it's beautiful and very rugged. I've got walkers, mostly. Lots of walkers. See, the bit where I live of East Sussex is in apparently a tourist information film in China. As a consequence, we have lots and lots and lots of Chinese tourists who come. Not really dressed suitably, though, for walking the White Cliffs and the Seven Sisters. And the rangers get a bit cross with them because they sort of turn up in T-shirts and plimsolls, not expecting the howling gales that have been such a feature of the English summer. And are any of them pop fans from the 80s? don't think so. I mean, they generally ask me directions to Beachy Head. There's a lot of that going on. But Kat, you're in Oslo, aren't you, where I imagine the sapphire skies that Norway is so famous for are perhaps not smiling on you at the moment any more than they are in England. No, it's been pretty horrible here, actually. We've had landslides even and way too much rain. So I think summer sort of washed out completely. So I'm just waiting for a gap. I've got this great big expedition planned of hiking a mountain ridge. So I'm waiting for a little gap so that I can get up on the top of a mountain. Have you Good been story. on one of your floating saunas that you told us about? Have you, oh, yeah. have you indulged in that? Not yet. I've got that booked. Yeah, in the coming days. So an early morning dip in the fjord, which doesn't feel quite as dramatic in August, to be completely fair, as it does in January, but it should be fun. So there we go. Well, I'm off on a sleeper train, thank you very much, on Sunday. I'm going up to Scotland, well, I'm going up to Glasgow, and then I'm getting a little plane to the Isle of Tyree in the Hebrides, where I'm going to spend a week. Small hop across the North Sea from me, then I can wave at you. <laughs> I'll give you a wave. We could both be there working on our tans. <laughs> yes, not so successful, I think. <laughs> Shall we go and see how you've been doing? So I know we were sort of, well, kind of on holiday. Have you still been researching and and preparing, getting ready to win this one? I have been swatting up because I always have to. I was up very early this morning getting on top of my subject or trying to. But yeah, I love it. I love having projects while on holiday. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can't switch off entirely. So to have a topic to prepare for for today has been a nice part of the holiday itself. 
Excellent. We're such nerds, aren't we? All three of us, I think. <laughs> Can't get away from it. <laughs> well, I think we're going to start with Richard today. Your topic this week, I never know if I pronounce it properly. Is it synesthesia? I think the cuneiform pronunciation is synesthesia, Cat. Just saying. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, synesthesia. Should we go back to I the mean, British Museum and ask again? <laughs> I mean, I don't, there are no rules about these kinds of things. Of course, it comes from two Greek words. Same as anesthesia, only sin instead of an. So anesthesia means you feel no sensation. Synesthesia means you conjoin sensations. And it's a condition, although that makes it sound like something wrong with you. It's not anything really wrong with you at all. But it's a condition that a number of people have. It comes in various different forms, but basically stimulus to one sense produces a reaction in another sense also. The most famous version of it is chromathesia, and that's sound and colour association. So some people will hear a particular sound or a particular Mm -hmm. musical pitch, and it will have for them an association of colour. Some people, for example, might think that A which is the note orchestra's tuned to, produces the colour red, for example. Now, for some, it'll be an associate. They'll hear the note A and they'll think of red. Others have it in a really precise sort of way. So they will hear the note A and they will see in front of them, almost as if it's actually there, an orange triangle or something like that. Another very common form is grapheme synesthesia. And this happens to people who cannot see a number or a letter without that triggering some other sense to usually colour. So, for example, if you were to put a page full of random numbers in front of someone with this form of synesthesia, they would be able to pick out the sevens and the threes and the fours and everything because each number would have its own individual colour. Another common one is a sort of spatial synesthesia where people will hear a sequence of numbers and experience it actually as a sort of 3D map almost. For example, the kind of memory feats that you would see from some kind of stage entertainers. If you have that form of synesthesia, it's very, very useful. The memory palace thing, the idea that, or for example, if you were a card sharp and you wish to remember where the positions of all the cards in the deck, if you had that form of synesthesia, that would be very useful. Sometimes it's weirdly precise. There's a marvellous article I read which says Derek is earwax. And there's this man, he's a pub landlord somewhere, and if he hears the name Derek, he tastes earwax. Now, nobody wants to taste earwax at any time, I don't think. Maybe there are some niche pursuits in which there are. But imagine that every time you hear a certain word, you'd have a taste association of something quite disgusting. And how awkward if you had a colleague or a neighbour or family member called Derek. What's going on with synesthesia? Well, we don't really know. It's been around for a very long time. We know that. The first recorded mention of it, I think, is our old friend John Locke. And in 1690, Locke wrote about, well, we think it was Saunderson, who was the location professor of mathematics at Cambridge at the time, who couldn't hear a trumpet without experiencing the colour scarlet. He'd hear a trumpet he'd experience scarlet. That's the first mention, I think, we have of it in modern literature, or you know, early modern literature. The first person to give a medical account of it was a man called Georg Sachs. And Georg Sachs was born in Corinthia, in what's now Austria. And in 18... Well, he was doing his PhD thesis on the interesting subject of his own albinism and that of his sister. And there's one chapter in the PhD thesis, it's almost a rabbit hole, actually, suitably for this podcast, in which he writes about the association that he has between certain vowel sounds and certain colours. So you have there, in 1812 it was published, the first account we have in the medical literature, the academic literature, I think, of someone 
problem with synesthesia. Certain valves gave him an association of certain colours. Unfortunately, poor man died when he was 28 of something called nervous fever. It begins to be reported a little bit. I mean, the phenomenon we know goes back to the Greeks. There are people talking about things like it, although we don't call it synesthesia then. It becomes something that becomes to be talked about more often in a recognisable way, late 19th century. And that's with the emerging academic field of psychology. As soon as people start thinking about psychology, then phenomena like synesthesia becomes interesting to them and they start writing it up. So from the 1870s, the 1880s, and on into the 20th century. But then there's this weird setback which happens, and that's where in the field of psychology from about the 1920s, 1930s on, behaviourism was a doctrine which kind of swept all contenders away, and that was when psychologists became interested in what happened to us out there in the world, our behaviours, our interactions, if you see what I mean. What was happening to us internally wasn't so interesting. So there was a big kind of then lapse of interest in synesthesia until the 1970s, 1980s, when two things happened. We began to develop equipment which was able to measure what was happening neurophysiologically within us, things like MRIs, that kind of thing. So you could look and see what was happening in people's brains when certain things happened. But also, there was quite a bit of research into how we try to understand there's this thing called the binding phenomenon. Now, if you were to pick up a cricket ball, highly unlikely in my case, Charles more likely in yours, Cat. I don't know what your cricketing form is. But, you know, you've got a number of things happening. You have the image of the cricket ball. You have its mass, its volume, its shape in your hand. You have the other associations that might go with that. And those are bound together by our brains in such a way as to produce the result. And the result is cricket ball. We don't really know how that happens. Obviously, synesthesia becomes very interesting then because what's happening suggests there's some different kind of neurological wiring going on. Well, what is going on? Scholars disagree, of course, but the latest research, some of it actually interestingly pioneered by Simon Baron-Cohen at Cambridge, who is, of course, the father of Ali G. Well, not Ali G, but Sasha Baron-Cohen, <laughs> as a little aside for you. And there's a sort of different streams of research, but they seem to agree on something, which is that what's happening in synesthetes, as they're called, is that it's a developmental thing. Most people, as their brains develop, start to treat the world more and more in terms of discrete phenomena, if you see what I mean. So what we see is one thing, what we hear is another thing, what we taste is another thing. And there's a sort of pruning or a pairing of the neurological connections between the different parts of the brain in the cerebral cortex that process that different thing. Charles? Could you learn synesthesia? Are you just born with it? Because it would be useful. You mentioned card sharps, that sort of thing. Could you learn it to become part of your way of experiencing life? Well, that's a very interesting question. Again, people disagree because there are sort of different forms of it. There are some people who it does seem to be actually wired into them and what's happening to them is neurological. So they cannot but see the colour red if they hear an A at 440, for example. There are others, I think, who treat it more as a sort of way of handling metaphor. So in the late 19th century, you'd have Baudelaire, for example, or Rambo, French symbolist poets, who started using language in a way which describes sort of synesthetic phenomena. Were they actually synesthetes? I don't think they were, but I think they were using some of those ideas in order to kind of break down the kind of rigorous separation of senses. But I think that was aesthetic. I think that was a kind of romantic notion. Charles. I think also it can come upon you. I, I knew somebody who was at a particularly unpleasant boarding school, and he finds all his memories are in colour, but the ones of his days at that boarding school, they're in black and white. 
Is that a synesthesia or is that just some element of shock, would you say? Well, I think it's probably related to it. I don't particularly know. The interesting stuff at the moment is, well, lots of interesting stuff about it at the moment, is they think there's a genetic element to this, actually. And if there is a genetic element, I think that's probably not the only factor in play here. But if if you're talking about a sort of true synesthete, if I can call it that, then that genetic factor is something which I think somehow inhibits or curtails that pairing away of neurological crossover. So what's happening in the synesthete is that those synapses, those pathways are firing and open. Did you want to say something, Kat? I was just wondering about accidents. I mean, you were talking about that sounds like a trauma thing, doesn't it, Charles, that you were talking about. But I wonder about accidents. Could you have a, a you know damage to your brain in a car accident or something like that and, and then develop it? Or is it just something that happens from birth? There is some evidence, actually, that um, you can, that some people develop synesthesia as a result of head trauma or actually some other kind of physical trauma. It also alters, I think, if, for example, a synesthete with a cold can sometimes experience different colour sound associations. So all that stuff, I think, is subject to all kinds of different influences. And it happens in all sorts of interesting ways. There's certain, there was somebody who used to be able, he was a blind person, but he thought he was able to tell you the colour of a cloth by holding his hand over it. Now, I know this seems to go into a kind of area of kind of stagecraft or magical thinking or so on. But um, I don't think that's the case for most people. It's quite a common phenomenon as well. More people have it than you think. And I mean, the bloke who sort of made it not exactly fashionable again, but sort of proper again after it fell into being looked askance at as behaviorism took hold. He's a guy called, he's called Richard Saitovic, and he's a neurologist in North Carolina. And he started doing some research in the 1980s. And he started arguing that his view is that it's not just happening in the cerebral cortex. He thinks it might be happening in the limbic system, which is the part of the brain which deals with our most primitive reactions. And he thinks something interesting might be happening in that we used to think that our sense experience and how we rationalise that is bottom-up, if you see what I mean. We're out in the world, we see an elephant, image of an elephant goes in, it's processed and produces a mental reaction. He thinks that there might be a kind of loop going on, in fact. And that's what's happening is we see the elephant, the information goes in at the bottom and goes up into our consciousness and we work out what it is. But he thinks that sometimes it loops back and it goes back into the limbic system and the limbic system then alters our perception of reality, which is quite a an interesting and quite a radical and challenging way of beginning to work out the ways we interpret the external world with our internal means of interpretation. Go ahead. Do you think that most people with it find it a positive thing or is it just annoying? I always think it sounds really quite incredible, but is it actually something that people enjoy? Well, the evidence shows that most people who have it are all too pleased to have it, in fact, and regard it as something which augments and enhances and enriches their experience of the world. And it's interesting. I mean, the the Cytobic research takes us away from the idea that somehow it's pathological, that somehow this is a malfunction. I think his view is it's not a malfunction at all. It's simply another mode of processing, not quite a sixth sense, but more that kind of thing. And it brings advantages to those who possess it. There is some people think that it is connected to other attributes which are pathologized. Some people think it might be related to forms of autism. Some people think it might be related to forms of schizophrenia. But of course, it may be without that in itself making it a problem. I think for lots of people, it's really an asset and enables them to perceive and interpret and perhaps report the world in all sorts of interesting and surprising ways. 
Would you like a favourite fact? It's not really a fact, it's a favourite synesthete. Oh, yes, would love that. Alexander Skriabin, the great but strange Russian composer, born in the minor Russian nobility in the 1870s, a precocious child. He was a bit of a weed as well, actually, but he became fascinated by piano music and he only had to hear a piece played on the piano and he'd be able to go and play it himself simply from hearing it once, that sort of Mozartian gift. But he also liked to build pianos and as a child, he used to build pianos and present them as a going home present to visitors to his parents. What an awkward thing that might be to try to get in your carriage when the child of your host has built you a piano. He also corralled all the local children into an orchestra, but then had a tantrum and ran away because none of them could play the instruments as he could play it, just from this sort of innate gift. Anyway, his music, his musical skills were prodigious. He went off to Moscow and was at the conservatoire there, where he was taught by Arensky, among others. Hugely talented pianist, massive, massive talent. Shared a teacher with Rachmaninov, another great um, pianist of that period. But he was awkward. He was difficult. He didn't conform to type. Arensky, in the end, refused to sign the certificate when he left the conservatoire, attesting to his ability. So he was a bit of a kind of marginal figure. Went to Switzerland, wrote some great stuff, wrote some lovely piano music, but it got more and more strange. And as he got older, he got more and more strange. And then he got involved with Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophists and started to think that he wanted to create a Gesamtkunstwerk, a total work of art. And he started working on a piece called Mysterium. And Mysterium was designed to be played in the foothills of the Himalayas in a concert which would be accompanied by incense burning to create a smell, colours projected by a sort of colour piano that he had designed, and also uh, singing and dancing and music, and that at the end of it, humanity would achieve a state of bliss. Now, you can go and see his house in Moscow. It's just off the Arbat, the sort of smart bohemian centre of Moscow. And there you'll see inside the sort of colour piano he had designed for his second wife, Tatiana. So he would sit at the old Joanna, a Bechstein as a matter of fact, and he would bash out the sort of tunes, and it was pretty atonal at this time, on the Joanna, while his, I think, rather poor and beleaguered wife, Tatiana, would sit there with a colour piano, and it's like a ring of coloured lights, and have to press buttons to switch these different coloured lights on. Essentially what we're talking about, people, is a very early light show. It's basically what you get at the O2 now, this sense that, and it's quite conscious now, isn't it, that we put sound and images and colours and lights together. This is a long, long preamble to giving you the germ of my interesting fact. You know what? He didn't have synesthesia because his colour chart was allied to the circle of fifths. So the circle of fifths is a musical concept, and around that he built his colour chart. It was conceptual. It wasn't innate. It was conceptual. So Scriabin, one of the most famous people with synesthesia, probably didn't have synesthesia at all. My tale is told. Bravo. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for that, Richard. I sort of feel like I'd quite like to have it, but I don't know, maybe maybe it would be annoying. (laughs) Do you know, as Richard was saying all that, I was thinking, well, we all have it without it being obvious in a way, because every time you say or think of something, you do have a sort of series of symbols that flash up in your mind. So yeah, I think it sounds like a very, very vivid form of what we generally all have in a subdued way. I think I have a form of it too. And there's a bloke I know who runs the smell laboratory at UCL. Because I sometimes have a smell and I have an association with the smell. And he tested me a while ago. He's a charming fellow. And um, 
one of the other things I remember is that he would give me smells on a little bit of like blotting paper for me to smell, and then I would have to say the association. I mean, he gave me one, and I said, oh, that's easy. And he said, what's that? And I said, well, that is the gentrification of Islington. And he said, well, that actually is the smell of cabbage. <laughs> and I went, oh, well, I didn't know it was the smell of cabbage, but I knew <laughs> that it was the gentrification of Islington. Where that came from, I've no idea. Brilliant. Well, there we go. I don't think I can really imagine that smell in my head, but yeah, well, never mind. (laughs) Thank you, Richard. So I think I'm going next this time. So my topic this week is going to be Piltdown Man or the Piltdown Forgery. And I think this came up in one of your uh, topics recently, Charles, is what reminded me of it. And it's actually the most incredible hoax, archaeological historical hoax, really. And one that was not actually revealed for about 40 years. And I remember learning about it in my first year undergraduate and uh, the fact that we're still actually publishing papers on it. There's still things we don't know, even though we've worked out what went wrong. But to sort of see how it started, we have to go back to December 1912, when at a meeting of the Geological Society of London, an audience was very excited to listen to a talk when paleontologist Arthur Smith Woodward, who was the Keeper of Geology at the British Museum, Museum with the Natural History Department, which later became the Natural History Museum. He announced alongside amateur antiquarian and a solicitor, Charles Dawson, that they had made a a really spectacular discovery. In Piltdown in Sussex, they had found a new fossil hominin, which was the uh, so-called Euanthropus dorsoni, or uh, Dawson's Dawn Man, later became known as Piltdown Man. And this was sensational because Apparently, it was the missing link between human and ape that everyone had been looking for. The story behind it was that Charles Dawson, who was, so he wasn't a trained archaeologist at all, but very much an amateur, and was very keen on collecting artefacts. He'd been down in Piltdown and walked along the gravels and found all these pieces of bone. And he'd sent them to Smith Woodward and uh, they both carried out some excavations. And what they found was a mandible with two very, very worn molar teeth and parts of a human skull. Now, the jaw was clearly very ape-like, but it had these really worn down molar teeth that you'd only ever see in humans. And their skull seemed very, very human-like. And they found lots of artifacts, uh, lots of stone tools, early mammals, so hippo and elephant. And with all of this and the type of context they found it in, they estimated it to date back to 500,000 years ago. So this was sensational because everyone had been looking for this. And it was especially uh, very popular in the media as well in England because no early hominids had been found in England or in Britain at all. Lots of things were being found on the continent, especially in Germany. You had in the Neanderthal Valley, you had the first Neanderthal fossils found, another one called the Heidelbergensis in Germany in 1907. So they were kind of waiting for it. And here it was. There were people who were critical and didn't quite believe it, but they carried a bit more work, found more artefacts, and people were convinced. And one of the keys was that they look the same. So what happens when you bury something in the ground in one particular place, it takes up the colour of the surrounding soil. And these had a very specific, very sort of red-brown colour from the surrounding Piltdown gravels. And crucially, nobody really saw the originals. They saw uh, plaster casts of them, but the, the originals were guarded really quite carefully. But it was accepted. There was another discovery made in 
1915 by Dawson. He sent a postcard to Smith Woodward saying that he'd found another site three kilometres away with more teeth that he sent across. And that was sort of also, I think, uh, helping the doubters to believe. And then in the 20s and 30s, this wasn't textbooks. This was, you know, seen as, as fact. People kind of forgot about it because in, in other places like um, China and other parts of Asia, loads of uh, other fossils were found and people were getting suspicious. But it wasn't until the 1950s that it was actually revealed as a hoax. So 40 years later, these doubts were sort of came to something and it was uh, the head of anthropology at the British Museum, especially, who, who started it. Part of the problem was that at that point, there was no dating technique really that could be used for this. So even now with radiocarbon dating, it doesn't really go back much further than about 50,000 years. It doesn't always work on these materials. Yes, Charles. Well, I was just wondering, your field of expertise, archaeology, has it always attracted sort of fantasists and fraudsters? Unfortunately, yes, there's quite a lot of them, but they're not all as successful as this one, actually. So a lot of them are being caught much more quickly, but it does seem like, and I think it's partially because it seems quite easy. And I guess for something like this, where they knew it couldn't be dated scientifically, really, in, in at least the you know, first part of the 20th century, it seemed quite an easy thing to do. And what this showed, especially this case, is that actually it can be really, really bad. Here, part of the problem was everybody wanted to believe and everybody wanted England to be part of this big race. There was all these scientists in Germany who were actually very uh, bitchy and horrible about Britain uh, and the British anthropologists as well. So personally, I think there's a real danger. And actually, in this case, the motivations for the fraud, I'll get to that in a moment, but I think that's also quite interesting. I do think the way it was revealed was quite interesting because, again, it was a new sort of dating, not very accurate dating. So some scientists looked at the fluorid content in these bones, which can give you an idea of how long they've been in the ground. So if they were all the same age, so if they came from you know the same background, same location, and the same age, they should have the same amount of fluorid taken up into the bones from the surrounding soil. And actually they didn't. So the ape-like jaw and the human, the sort of skull bones, were different. They had different amounts of fluorid. And that means that they couldn't have been buried at the same time. And in fact, they found out that the sort of earliest date really was 50,000 years ago, which was when modern humans had already developed. And so this was not possible. The colour was quite clever. That's all stained. So that was all done really deliberately as well. So, of course, the question was, who did it? Was it both of them? Now, Smith Woodward was quite a famous and and well-known and well-respected scientist at this point. Dawson was not. He was an amateur. But there were lots of other people who'd been suspected. I think more than 20 people have been suspected of doing this, including Arthur Conan Doyle. Well, the man who we had believing in fairies. So he was very much a sort of product of his time, really, wasn't he? And being quite gullible. And uh, yeah, fairies and fraudsters. Don't you think that there's maybe, when you're on the brink of discovery, a little extra push to get you over the line? I can understand the incentive of that when you might just think, I know it's there, just need just a little bit more to achieve the critical mass. And then you might just be very... There's a very interesting thing in in New Testament critical studies. There was a scholar, I won't say his name. He discovered a Gnostic gospel. It was a homoerotic gospel. It was a version of the gospel of Mark, really, in which Jesus and the disciples had a very gay old time. Everyone got tremendously excited about this. And then it was 
not conclusively prove, but I think the evidence is pretty solid that it was a deliberate fraud. Now, why did he do that? To enhance the reputation? Well, it cost him his reputation. Did he do it to set the cat among the pigeons? I don't know. Did he interpret stuff that was floating around in the mass of material of first century writing in that period? We don't know. But it's an interesting one, isn't it? Or maybe he just wanted to kind of, you know, drop a bomb. Well, that's, I think that's the part of the thing. So the, if Conan Doyle was involved, and part of it apparently was that he was very, uh, because of his spiritual beliefs, he didn't really agree with a lot of the scientists. He didn't leave this ideas of human evolution. He was also at the time, so in 1912, he, was, uh, he published The Lost World. And in it, he actually states as a quote, if you are clever and know your business, you can fake a bone as easily as you can a photograph. So he actually wrote that beforehand. He used to play golf in Piltdown, so he was he was local, so he had all sorts of incentive. But we're pretty sure now that it was probably uh, Dawson who did it on his own. In fact, he was a collector and had lots of artifacts. He had almost 40 other fraudulent objects that he had presented to the world, things that he'd personally faked. And a new scientific study in 2016 looked at all these artifacts, found that he'd got really elaborate. So the jaw was definitely from an ape. And he also had done some quite clever things. Uh, he'd, he even pushed gravel into the root of the teeth and gravel into sort of little gaps in the skull. So it's a, it's a really incredible story. So he, he seems to be him. Also, no more discoveries was made after he died. So it probably was him, but we're still, we're still not quite sure. Piltdown Man is sometimes cited by creationists as evidence of the wickedness of satanically motivated paleontologists, and that actually the account of uh, the origin of us and the world, as written about in Genesis, in the first book of the Bible, is the true one, and that paleontologists have conspired to disrupt the record in that kind of way. That's just another example of unintended consequences. Your, you know, the bomb you dropped might explode in ways which you might later very much regret. Do you want to know my favourite fact from all of this? Yes, please. Yes, please. So we're pretty sure that it was Dawson who did it, but among the other suspects was a man called Martin Hinton, who was a scientist. He was also, uh, for a while, from the 30s, working as the Keeper of Zoology at the Natural History Museum. And um, he was sort of involved. He was a volunteer at the Natural History Museum when this was all revealed. But it was only in 1976 that somebody climbed up to tidy up the attics uh, above his office and at the time, everyone was pretty certain it was Dawson who, who did it all. But uh, they found these trunks with lots of bits of paperwork belonging to him, including sort of various human bones and teeth. And then he found a collection of bones and teeth stained exactly the same colour as those of Piltdown. And some other parts of, of his collections from elsewhere also contained objects that were clearly stained deliberately in exactly the same way, exactly the same way as the Piltdown forgery. Uh, but nobody really knew what he had to do with it. And, and there was this, some other correspondence that was discovered that way back when he started, round about first, I think, decade of the 20th century at the Natural History Museum, he was very cross with Smith Woodward, who refused to pay him. So there's another theory that it was actually him uh, who had gone completely unnoticed, and he was doing it to essentially embarrass him. But who knows? Who knows what the motive was? Brilliant. That makes so much sense. Fascinating. It, it makes me think a little bit of cat of shoplifting vicars. So there's a thing that um, vicars, after a while, 
go bad, but in a mildly vicarish sort of way, and get done for shoplifting and things like that. And I don't know if that's simply to do with the effects of long-term uh, endurance in institutions, but I wonder if it's the same is true in academics, that sometimes after a while in your field, just frustration or boredom or something just makes you go bad, and then you can chuck in a bit of false evidence or something or stir it up a bit. Maybe it's possible, isn't it? But talking of bad people, Charles, I think that leads us quite nicely to your topic today because you've been researching properly bad people, uh, the highwaymen. Yes, I love this subject. It's a very, um, it plays to all our sort of fantasies of badness, but in a sort of rather noble form. I mean, the bottom line of a highwayman is that they are somebody who robs people on horseback. I mean, either alone or in part of a gang. And they tended to attack coaches and other people on horsebacks. And, you know, a lot of our associations with our memories of these things from the stories we may have heard are true. They did tend to wear masks or handkerchiefs over their faces. People wrote that they were as common as crows in a period of English history from about 1650 to 1800. And we know of people undertaking travel in the more dangerous parts of the road system of England who would write their wills before undertaking the journey in fear of losing their life during that time to the highwaymen. And actually, a lot of them were active around London, the four great roads, Great Western Road, Great North Road, Dover Road and Oxford Road. They all had really difficult areas to negotiate if you were an honest traveller. Hounslow Heath was very bad news, Wimbledon Common, Barnes Common, Blackheath, and also further afield in Salisbury Plain. And what all these places had in common was really no semblance of law and not much for population in the 1650s. Certainly in the earlier period of the high women's payday, there was really very little to stop them. And they were glamorized. Very early on, we find highwaymen who were looked up to as what they liked to come to be called as the gentlemen of the road. And this isn't entirely true. These were very ruthless thieves, robbers, who were going to take the money off you. Uh, and they would hold up stagecoach, well, not uh, coaches that were going from London usually out to the further parts. They would target them. So this is one of the reasons of the 1650s becoming the great period of highwaymen is because the, the public stagecoach started in England in 1658. And the personnel who were involved in these early holdups tended to have a sort of cavalier past to them. They came in with the restoration of Charles II in 1660. Charles II didn't repay the people who had lost a lot of money during his father's cause, fighting for the Stuarts. And so they came back to their lands, finding parts were confiscated or just gone. They hadn't got anything, any money at all. So they resorted to it. And others were opportunists. One of the, the first famous highwaymen was a Norman Frenchman called Claude Duval. And he came over after Charles II was restored as the coachman page of one of Charles II's illegitimate children. And as soon as he got to London, he thought this wasn't very good. He had expensive tastes. And so he became a highwayman, had a very successful 10-year career. And he was known for his gallantry towards women. And when he was eventually executed, they put up a memorial, which is still there, actually, in St. Paul's Church, Covent Garden. And it starts with the lines, Here lies Duval, reader, if male thou art, look to thy purse, but if female, to thy heart. And he was a heartthrob, a very ruthless criminal who had rather a, a seductive image around him. 
And we find this, you know, that they very quickly became fantastic figures for storytellers. And in fact, in 1714, there was the first, the history of the lives of the most noted highwaymen. And this is the first time we've come across a reference to the famous phrase, he ordered him to stand and deliver. And often there was a sort of element of persuasion, but being held up at gunpoint was usually enough. The most famous highwayman from an English perspective is Dick Turpin, and he was far from glamorous. He was a butcher's apprentice who was taught to read and write, and he started off as a a dealer and stealer in cattle and sheep. And he got in with a very bad group called the Essex Gang. And they went about doing housebreak-ins, sort of home invasions. And they threatened, famously threatened a woman, an old widow, that they would hold her over a fire unless she handed over her savings. And they managed to extract £100 from her. One of the problems of being a highwayman is that there was always a traitor lurking, somebody who was going to get the reward for cashing in his mates. And the Essex gang went by the way. And Dick Turpin ended up becoming a highwayman with a very famous colleague called Tom King. And he shot Tom King over a disagreement about a stolen horse. And we then end up with him emigrating effectively to Yorkshire, where he took on a new persona. He became a Mr. Palmer. And Mr. Palmer was a handful. He was a horse dealer, but he was also quietly being a highwayman. And he got caught because he shot somebody's cockerel. And he was arrested for that. And at the time, the the establishment figures in the area decided that he was some form of horse thief. That was the only way he could sustain such a lavish lifestyle. And Palmer, who was Dick Turpin, wrote to his brother-in-law back in Essex and said, look, I need your help. But the brother-in-law didn't know anyone in Yorkshire. So he refused to collect the letter. It was noticed in the post office by the man who had taught Dick Turpin to write as his handwriting, and he reported him to the Justice of the Peace. And Turpin was brought down, and in fact, in an otherwise totally shoddy and disgraceful life, he had a rather famous end where he dressed up especially for his funeral. He was uh, executed at York to great fanfare. And this is a common theme with these criminals. He then became a, a very famous figure in terms of legend. And people looked to him as this very gallant soul who had, in some ways, robbed the rich to look after the poor, which was totally untrue. And the myth grew. And in fact, we find that in the 1830s, this publishing phenomenon of the Penny Dreadful, which was a a sort of eight or 10 page comic, really. Some people have said it's the precursor of the video game for what they call working class youths. And they would be devoured, these stories. And Dick Turpin became a a huge, well, fictional figure, really. It was very little connected to his life. And we, we get this sort of story of Black Bess, Dick Turpin's highwayman horse, who supposedly rode 200 miles through the night to give Dick Turpin an alibi in York when he had done a crime in London. All of this fiction just grew out of a a need to glamorize very bad criminals. It's very interesting we have this conversation today, Charles, because on the day of recording yesterday was the 60th anniversary of the Great Train Robbery, which, for those of you who don't know, was a notorious robbery that happened in England when a mail train was stopped by a gang of organized crime uh, members, and they robbed the equivalent of about £60 million worth of cash from that train. 
And almost immediately, it became a sort of legendary thing. Some of the characters were apprehended, some went to prison, some escaped. They're still spoken about now, Ronnie Biggs or Buster Edwards and so on, as kind of folk heroes. But there was nothing heroic about what they did at all. They battered two people who worked on that train. They gave one injuries, which it's thought contributed to his early death. And it seems to me that whenever they come up, we all get a little bit misty-eyed about it and think of them these Robin Hood figures, and I don't think they were at all. And I wonder if that's something that maps onto the sort of popular take-up of stories about highwaymen too. What is it about that that lends itself to mythologising in that way? Well, I think part of it was national pride. There was a competition during this period of highwaymen. The British thought their highwaymen were superior to French highwaymen because they were supposedly gallant and generous and, I think, sort of vulnerable to a a smile of a pretty victim. You're absolutely right, Richard. It's absolute rubbish. And if you go sideways and look at the equivalent in Australia, the bushrangers, people have looked at that. Why was somebody as despicable as Ned Kelly, who murdered policemen along, you know, his brother and he and two others and their gang were murderers, Why are they seen as these sort of embodiment of Australianism? And the theory is that the average Australian likes to think of themselves as totally free from control. And Ned Kelly has become the sort of pinup for a certain type of Australian rebel. And then you also have it in America. You know, Jesse James was a a psychopathic, egomaniac, probably narcissistic. There's a wonderful comment where... He said uh, about his gang, we're not thieves, we are bold robbers, and I'm proud of the name, for Alexander the Great was a bold robber, and Julius Caesar and Napoleon Bonaparte. So he himself saw himself in this light, and he was mythologized by a sympathetic press. In the South, he had been a war criminal as a 16-year-old. He's involved in the massacre of 120 Unionist troops, really a barbaric, terrible massacre in a place called Centralia. But somehow, to the South, he represented the continued lost cause after the defeat of the Confederates. He was seen as taking on victims that were to do with the government in the North, even when that wasn't true. So I think you've hit on something there, which is we project onto these truly appalling people. You know, one of the most famous highwaymen in England used to take the tongues out of his victims so they couldn't give evidence against him. These are really bad people, but somehow we see them as glamorous. And I don't know if it's, is it the horse and the gun and all of this sort of reference to soldierly conduct, but these were not people to be truly admired. Have you come across any female highwaymen, women? Yes, I have. Now... <laughs> The trouble with this is that they've been glamorized too. I mean, the the most famous one is a woman called Lady Ferrers, Catherine Ferrers, who lived from 1634 to 60. And she was palmed off to a, a rich old man as an unwilling bride. And she became the wicked lady. There's a rather famous film in 1945 with Margaret Lockwood playing her opposite James Mason. And she terrorized Hertfordshire, supposedly. There's no direct evidence of this. But the thinking is that she used to sneak out of her large house in the country and gallop around with her lover. And they would hold up people and do it for the thrill. And also because they had some passionate affair going on. It was it was what really fired them up before passion. But one day, you know, she attacked a, a wagon and there was a man hidden in it with a gun who supposedly shot her and she managed to get home where she bled to death. A more interesting one to me is not the one who's... She's been twice the the subject of films in Hollywood. But there was a woman called Mary Frith, 
who was known as a bit of what they called in the day a rumpscuttle, uh, a tomboy. And she was born in late Elizabethan times near St. Paul's in London. And she's been claimed, if you look her up in the literature, she's been very much claimed as a sort of lesbian or bisexual icon. She was an excellent wrestler. She drank in taverns, smoked a pipe and was good with pistols. Her family found her completely out of control and exiled her to America, but she snuck back. She became a very well-known pickpocket known as Mole Cut Purse. And then she did a bit of highway womaning. But her real skill, if I can put it that way, was being a fence, a dealer in stolen goods. But she was quite a jolly soul. And she died just after the restoration of 1660. And she had 20 pounds, quite a lot of money in those days, which she left in her will for her drinking companions to celebrate the restoration of Charles II. So a few of them, yes, but it's seen mainly as a very masculine trade, if I can put it that way. Do you think, Charles, we, they sort of perform a function is that all of us, mindful of our responsibilities and duties and the rule of law, there's a version of us, perhaps in our dreams or in our unconscious, that wants to go out and rob banks and terrorise people and that somehow, maybe there's something about that in James Bond, these people who live beyond the law somehow, and that that satisfies a need for us to fantasise or valorise our own darker impulses, which we don't indulge. I think it's very much a an anti-rule-of-law fantasy, yes. And also, how exciting to be galloping through the night, pursued or pursuing, and relieving people of money and, and risking death at every opportunity. There is something very exciting about The Highwayman, and that is why it's had such a, uh, a hold over our imaginations. I mean, the reason it all came to a halt, the last one I could find who was hanged for his crime was a man called Snooks, rather fantastic name for uh, the last hung highwayman. But he was killed in probably about 1801. But the decline started in the late 18th century with horse patrols in London, which made robberies much more difficult. And JPs, the magistrates in England, not licensing premises that were connected with uh, providing sanctuary for highwaymen. And then banking, you know, a lot of the reason you could hold up people and take money off them is because they weren't putting their money into safer places. They had them on, had their money on them or in their houses. And so you could intercept that. And then the other one, rather more drab, was the fact that urbanization was really kicking off. So those long deserted stretches on the roads became less and less so. They were more policed. And do you have a favorite fact in all of this, Charles? Well, my favorite facts are two. One is which I've touched on before, is how utterly appalling Jesse James was. And he had a much more interesting older brother, Frank James, who was a great lover of Shakespeare and reading. And after his brother was shot in the back of the head, famously while hanging a picture, Frank James turned himself in and regretted for the rest of his life, regretted the terrible highwayman life he had, uh, well, Wild West outlaw life that he had led and busied himself in menial tasks. But my absolute favourite is going back to the fascination that we've has really been the undercurrent of this look at highwaymen in the popular mind, and the fact that the very first documentary-length film of over an hour that was made ever anywhere was the story of the Kelly Gang in 1906. And um, if you look it up, I watched it all yesterday, all that's left of it. There's only 15 minutes of the over hour long footage. It's fantastically camp, lots of arms being thrown in the air in horror and surprise, done by a team of theatrical actors. But it says everything to me that you've got this 
Ned Kelly's story was the first film of its kind. And that just shows how much, well, Rich is quite right, how much we project our wanted excitement onto extremely bad people. Brilliant. Well, I think there has to be a winner. We can't just sit here and and talk for fun and share our fun facts. Disembodied voice, what do you think this week? Well, I'm hearing that I shouldn't, but I'm seeing that Richard should be this week's winner. Well done, Richard. Yes, yeah, that's well, good. Isn't what it? colours are you seeing when that victory is announced, Richard? What colour is flashing in your mind? The gold. Gold. <laughs> always believing yourself. <laughs> I, I was very. Not, I know. I care nothing for these gewgaws, these mere baubles. I want everyone to have a lovely time. <laughs> but if those laurels should be pressed onto my resisting brow, it would be churlish to deny it. Well, you do accept victory so gracefully that it makes it easier for defeat to be. Stomached. What I will say is that with one episode left in this series, the scores are now nine, nine, nine heading into the final episode. Make of that what you will. Oh, what an amazing coincidence. <gasps> yeah. Well, on that sort of cliffhanger for the scores, we better go on and do a bit more revising, I think. And I've got our topics for next week. Richard, now you may need to explain this one a little bit. Bel Canto. Yes, very excited to do Bel Canto. It's a form of opera. It was the sort of form of opera that prevailed in the sort of early part of the 19th century. Bel Canto means beautiful singing, and it was a kind of radical breakthrough in the form, and I absolutely adore it, but I'll bore on about that next time. Brilliant. Well, I look forward to learning all about it. Charles, you have ordeals. Yes, I like a bit of that. The nonsensical side of ordeals, which I will share with you. Uh, what you'd have thought was a win in an ordeal turns out to be a loss and, and vice versa. So yeah, it's, it's human nature needing to look for a higher power to make decisions on its behalf. Brilliant. And I'm going to go with a nice and easy one again. I am going to be researching surnames and the history of surnames. That sounds good. And that's really good. Well, well, I better look up yours, both of yours. I'll do that as part of my homework. So that's it for this week. And thank you, everyone out there, for listening. Please do subscribe if you haven't done so already and leave us a review because that really helps other people find us when they're searching for a new podcast to listen to. Don't forget, you can also send us an email if you'd like, especially if you'd like to suggest uh, another future topic for us. That's at rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. You can also find us in the Daily Telegraph every Wednesday in our Rabbit Hole Detectives column where we take it in turns to discuss some more of our favourite facts from the show. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, how fine you look when dressed in rage. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. (laughs) 